Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, changemakers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. Welcome to Impact the World, and my guest today is David G, who is a world-renowned mindfulness teacher, meditation guide, and a stress expert. David G has a unique story. He went from a successful career on Wall Street, but one that made him miserable, and after a personal quest, turned that into his current work, which is helping individuals corporate executives, and sometimes members of the police force with their relationship to stress and meditation. It was a delight to get to speak to him while we're in lockdown via Zoom, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. David G, thank you so much for being with us for this show. Um, I will share with anybody who's listening to this show or watching this show, um, my co-producer for the show, Wendy, was super excited to have you on because you've been a hugely influential person in her life as you have in the lives of many hundreds of thousands at this point. But I know that your role in the world is very different to how you started out. And yeah. By your own story, you, you share that you were originally on Wall Street, but that you were on Wall Street for many years, but quite miserable. So I wonder if before we dive into where you went next, could you just give us a sense of, of, of the beginning of your life, your early life, what your focus was and how you ended up in Wall Street? Yes, I think it's important to share my misery uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not miserable now. So i Hopefully that gives hope to anyone who's miserable um, out there. Um, yeah, well, my life uh, right now is really, um, it's all about serving. It's all about meditating. It's all about teaching people to connect to that, uh, that innermost aspect of themselves, to have them awaken uh, their own energy, uh, awaken their own vision, uh, really awaken their voice. And uh, how I got here is a very, very circuitous route. And if we look at you know, how, we, how we typically get from A to B in life, it's never a straight line. At least I haven't met anyone who, it's, who, who has a straight line there. And so I started meditating innocently enough. Uh, well, my first, I guess, introduction to like the, the kooky world um, was my mother uh, was really big on Ouija boards. So we would you know, use, a, use a Ouija board when I was when I was a kid, that was, so I knew that she always thought that there's something else beyond here, uh, whether it's a kooky realm, whether it's another realm, whether it's many realms, uh, but there's definitely an intelligence beyond this realm. And so that was, you know, uh, embedded in me at a fairly young age. In college, I took uh, an experimental Asian studies course. And uh, part of that was a, a cool thing where we, where we meditated. And so we had a Zen master and we would all, there were 12 of us in the class. We would all go to this, you know, special room and uh, we sat in a circle and um, we were instructed to uh, raise our hands when we had a thought uh, in his hands, uh, our Zen master held a, a keisaku, an 18-inch bamboo stick. And so when we would raise our hands, he would come over and thwack us on the back. And so uh, it, it definitely changed whatever was going on there. But I was like, I don't, I'm not really sure I want to do this thing anymore. 
So I left that and I got into candle gazing uh, because I really enjoyed the stillness. That was like a really, really a seductive aspect of that process. And I figured, well, maybe it's just not that style. Maybe I could like this thing. So I did candle gazing and then I got into Tantra and then I got into mindfulness and Vipassana and I did a couple of these, you know, silent retreats for, for 10 days or two weeks. Uh, then I got into mantra and then I really started exploring a, a lot of other types of meditation and really stuck with that. Some of them for years, uh, others for, for days. And uh, then I started getting involved in the corporate world. And uh, it was originally as uh, a bond trader. And that led me uh, ultimately to become a mergers and acquisitions advisor. And, you know, that's like helping people take over companies and then figuring out how does one plus one equal at least two and a half. Um, and so I did that and uh, wasn't really enjoying it. I was good at it, but I wasn't really enjoying it um, long term, certainly. And I found that as I got deeper and deeper involved in working, you know, 15 hour days, seven days a week, and suddenly working for other people to help them get rich. Um, and, and I wasn't in that process getting rich. Uh, so that was just like, like, what am I doing? Why, why am I doing this? You know, is it just because of a conditioned thing. And as I got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into someone else's vision, someone else's journey, uh, I got further and further away from my own. And uh, suddenly I realized I had stopped meditating. I had given up my morning meditation ritual for an early morning train ride to the World Trade Center. I'd given up my uh, afternoon and evening ritual for a nice tall glass of scotch and like that. Um, Meditation was gone. And then suddenly I realized, you know, it's also gone uh, balance in my life. There was no balance. My relationships were strained at best. Uh, I wasn't a great uh, partner. I wasn't a, uh, really a great husband. Uh, I wasn't a great friend. Like I only had this singular vision uh, to show up, do this thing, go home, pass out. And I would wake up at two in the morning with a knot in my stomach, but only every day for like 10 years of that. And, um, I had tried to wash it away, you know, uh, with uh, with a late night drink, but like that never worked. Um, and I would just wake up and and just be in, in agony. And uh, I figured, well, this is pretty much, you know, going to be my life. I didn't know there were tools. I didn't really go back to like, oh, well, maybe if you brought a little balance into your life or started meditating again or, you know, whatever that was. And I didn't really know that there were tools. And so... Um, uh, in the wake of 9-11, and I, I worked on the 82nd floor of Tower 2, um, and just a few months before 9-11, um, had the great fortune to get the worst job ever in my life, which took me out of the World Trade Center, um, working for the worst, most despicable um, people. And, um, but, you know, here I am. So, um, you know, it's a combination of like survivor's remorse and uh, blessings and who can I thank, you know, every single moment for that. Um, but in the wake of 9-11, I was walking in southern Manhattan past a row of cardboard boxes that people were living in. And I walked past this particular box and uh, his hand reached out and grabbed my pant leg and pulled me in. And these blue crystalline eyes looked up at me 
And this guy said, uh, what's going to be on your tombstone? You know, it's a fair, it's a fairly reflective moment and never what you expect from that situation. I like reached into my pocket because I figured, oh, I should give this guy, you know, some money or something along those lines. But we like held in that gaze for what seemed like hours, probably just a, you know, a, a few seconds. And in that moment, like everything stopped, the world stopped. The traffic stopped. The people stopped. It was just me and him. I call these like butterfly moments where there's, there's something, something deeper here. Perhaps God speaking through this, you know, magnificent being um, that most of the times we don't really even pay attention to these people as, as we're walking past them. And this was my deep, deep, deep connection. Um, probably the most uh, profound conversation I ever had with anyone in my life. And we continued to, to talk just a little bit um, and then I, I staggered away and suddenly I found myself, tears were streaming down my eyes. My, my, my legs were weak. I had to sit down on the steps of an apartment building just about, you know, 300 feet away. And, uh, I, I was hyperventilating. I couldn't even catch my breath. And I, I, I went home and I, I shared this with my wife and she was like, you need to quit your job. And there's this guy, Deepak Chopra. He's doing a meditation retreat in Oxford, England. And maybe you should probably go to that and return to your, you know, your meditation thing. And I was like, okay, I'm fairly obedient. So I was like, okay, um, I'll do that. And um, within weeks, I had registered for that. And there's supposed to be like 3,000 people there, but it, no one was flying right after 9-11. Mm -hmm. And so there were just like 50 and just like a, a couple from the United States. Most of them were Europeans. And so suddenly it was like, whoa, meditation. I'm doing it again. And we were meditating for like six, seven hours a day. I'm um, practicing yoga and, you know, going deeper into some timeless, timeless wisdom. But by the third day, uh, I realized that my heart had been so blackened over these years, and I had been so shut down and so purposeless and so empty inside that um, each day of meditation was sort of like draping my, my let's say my heart was this uh, white linen that, that had been like submerged in black India ink. And every day it was like being draped through a stream and it was just like washed away and cleansed and lightened. And on the third day, so I felt this emotion that was so unfamiliar to me because I hadn't experienced it in years, maybe 20 years, and it was joy. I was like, oh my God, there's like, there's another way to like experience existence. And I was so happy and I was so giddy that I, you know, uh, instantly, you know, spoke to Deepak and I said, what do you think my next step is? And he was like, well, you should probably go to India. And so of course I'm fairly obedient. So I didn't even come back home. I went to the uh, embassy uh, in um in London and um, got, you know, got my special visa to head off to India and headed off to India in, in search of the guru. And I searched high and low for the guru. I was looking for that guru, um, you know, because I was like, I was lit in that moment. Uh, so receptive. It's like, whatever it is, bring it. And I was like meditating every morning and practicing yoga, you know, twice a day and bathing in the Ganges and praying in the temples and talking to all these people. Um, you know, I searched high and low. I went to Dharamsala to see his holiness, the Dalai Lama. He, he was not there that day. Um, then I traveled, you know, to, to the south of India. And it was about five and a half months that I'm like looking 
uh, for the guru. And as I was laying in a hammock in a cashew forest in Kerala in South India, I'm reading the Bhagavad Gita, you know, this ancient Indian text. And I'm reading, suddenly I, I read this, you know, chapter two, verse 48, which I have read, I don't know, 200 times before that, you know, because I was reading it every single day. And suddenly I read it. And it, it starts off with Yoga Sta Kuru Karmani. You know, the, the protagonist, Arjuna, uh, the great warrior is talking to God, Krishna. And he's like, how am I supposed to live my life? Just answer me. Just tell me, how am I supposed to walk through the world? And God, as Krishna, in the form of, of Krishna, replies to him, Yoga Sta Kuru Karmani, which means establish yourself in the present moment and then perform action. And I don't know, that just hit me like a lightning bolt. And I got so excited. I only had a few days left on my visa anyway. And so I raced, you know, well, racing in India is it's not the same thing. You know, <laughs> I waited for two days, got a bus that took me another two days and then sat in the airport for another 40 hours. But that was racing back. No, uh, yeah. Raced back to New York and um, like I had the answers. And a friend of mine after like three weeks said, you know, dude, all you do is sit around and meditate. And I replied, I know. Isn't it amazing? It brings me such joy and I'm so happy. And he said, well, you know, you're not doing anything else. You know, you're not, you're not doing anything else. So why don't you share this with other people? Why don't you teach other people to meditate? And um, I uh, sarcastically replied to him, uh, come on, I'm from New York. I don't care about anyone else's meditation. And it was true. This was just about me. And he said, well, if you really want to learn something, learn to teach it, learn it from the inside, learn the mechanics, learn the science, learn all those details. And I was like, mm, okay, how? And he said, come on, reconnect with your boy Deepak. He's got that center in California. He's like, it's the Chopra center. And uh, so become a meditation teacher. And I was like, Again, I'm fairly obedient. Lee, just make a suggestion to me and clearly I will do it. <laughs> so I headed off to, uh, to California to attend this workshop, which would be a component um, of, uh, of the teacher training. And uh, at that workshop, it was sort of like a love connection between David Simon, um, Deepak's partner for 20 years, uh, and me and Deepak. And like in that space on July 14th, Bastille Day, the last day of that workshop, um, they hired me to run the Chopra Center. And uh, that was like, I never went back home. I never flew. Well, I, six months later, I flew back to get all my stuff. But I just said, like, I'm here. I'm showing up. This is it. This is what I've been waiting for all this time. This is why I've been doing nothing for two years. I'm just like allowing this, uh, you know, to settle in. And um, that began a magnificent journey where I got to apprentice under the two of them for a decade, um, ultimately becoming the lead educator and then becoming um, the dean of Chopra Center University. And where I got to certify thousands of people in yoga, Ayurveda, meditation. I got to teach meditation every single day. Um, I got to launch those, uh, those sunrise meditations with Wendy. And I got to, you know, really just immerse and suddenly like listen to people after I would teach them like, well, why aren't you doing it? And what are your experiences and what are your challenges? And that allowed me to become a better teacher because at first I was just like telling everyone what to do. And then I realized, well, <laughs> to be a great teacher, you actually need to listen. Um, so that was a, that was one of the, the blow away lessons um, in that process. And um, at about the 10 year mark, David Simon, it's the cosmic joke. 
he was my closest and dearest friend, neurologist, dedicated to healing, uh, diagnosed with a uh, terminal brain tumor. And um, when he passed away, um, I was sort of like, you know what? I think I've, I think I've, I think I've really given my all to this process. Let me, you know, really challenging. Let me let this dream go. Cause I'm maybe I've done 85% of it, of what my vision was, what my dream was, and let me start a new dream. And so I left the nest with Deepak's blessing and uh, which was probably the most difficult, you know, really difficult conversation um, to have telling him. And of course he was like, you're always part of the family. Don't worry about that. You've done a great job. And you know, how can I help you? Um, so he's so gracious, you know, so ridiculously gracious. And uh, then I began just doing my own thing, traveling to different countries, working in hospitals, uh, working in South America, into the jungles, working with kids. Uh, I've worked in the prisons. Uh, I've worked in the corporate world. And so suddenly this thing really took on um, really a life of its own. And, uh, you know, there's a big difference with, between teaching uh, people at Bank America and teaching um, uh, the Dutch Special Forces. You know, so I really got to explore all these other areas and really study, study the science, study the neurology, study the practical application in a secular way, in a, in a Sanskrit cooked out woo-woo way, in a spiritual way, in an emotional way. And uh, I'm hooked. That's what I do now. I'm, I meditate probably for you know, at least a few hours every single day. And uh, I get to share uh, these things. And people say like, what do you do for a living? And probably my most common answer is I help people connect to the stillness and silence that rests within so they can make a better decision. And that's, that's, that's it. And, and I think that when we can really reconnect to that yoga stock, guru, karmati, you know, connect to that stillness first and then perform action, we're probably going to show up with a little higher vibration, just a little higher energy to make a better choice. Not always, but there's a higher likelihood. So yeah. that brings us to now, I guess. Beautiful. Thank you. David G., one thing that's interesting to me, because I knew, I knew a little bit of your story and, and you know, kind of where, where you were before you got to the Chopra Center. You mentioned your wife. And it's interesting that, you know, you clearly have, well, there's two things that hit me. Number one, that once David passed, your time with the Chopra Center was, was done. And it's interesting that you said you, you guys were like a triangle relationship, you, he, and Deepak, you were this formation. And so I'm always interested in that, how people and our relationships and our soul contracts with others kind of keep us in a place. And then if that dynamic changes, so too often does the form around it. But I'm curious with your wife who, who was, you know, you said earlier, your relationships weren't great when you were on Wall Street for those years where you felt right. kind of dead. But she's, it sounds like she's been this uh, champion companion and also that you two had a certain level of um, autonomy in your relationship and freedom to be able to explore what you needed. Did she go with you to India or was that a period where you two were apart? No, and it's a really common question that I get because, you know, here I was lost and needing something. Clarity, um, reconnection to purpose, um, meaning in life. Uh, and she was uh, totally selfless in that. She's like, you know, don't worry, I'm committed to you. You just work out your stuff. 
and I'll be here, you know, which is like ridiculously rare, I think, in, in any, any context. Uh, I've been fortunate to, to whether it's Deepak or David Simon, and there's been a whole bunch of other people in that product. Wayne Dyer was another one, uh, Louise Hay. Um, you know, there's been a whole bunch of uh, people who have seen um, more in me than I was ever seeing at that time. And uh, thank God for them for just like trusting that whatever whatever I was going to do next uh, would uh, be an, an, an evolution, you know, uh, really take me to a better level. Because, you know, I came back so clear. Mm. I came back um, so happy. I came back, um, you know, so peaceful in my heart, which had been turbulent for many, many years. And, you know, also, you know, uh, I, I don't mean, I, I don't want to gloss over it. You know, when, um, you know, for me, 9-11 was a, was a, was a, a game changer. Um, you know, like I said, I was at this other company at the time and, I uh, was running that company. I was I was the COO of that company, and we were on the roof, twenty blocks north of of the twin towers. And you know, I'd worked on and off in that building for for a decade, and there were people with me whose loved ones were in that building as well. And we were like standing there as you know, watching watching the buildings burn. And when Tower Two collapsed, and I know that everyone on the floor that I was working on. You know, if you were there, you, you died in that. Um, watching Tower 2 collapse is like watching something uh, vanish that's impossible to vanish. I had grown up looking at the World Trade Center. I had driven by that, you know, a trillion times. Uh, so so that really hit me uh, so deeply um, and made me question everything uh, uh, in life. It was probably the deepest trauma that I had ever experienced. And I believe, you know, obviously that we can rise from the ashes. Um, but I, but I believe that some traumas, you know, they're so deep, they hit you so, so hard um, that I wasn't really, uh, I wouldn't consider myself functional even right after that. Cause I was still trying to figure out how that happen? How, how could that, how could that happen? And, um, you know, I believe that that's what resilience is. And I believe resilience is not being bulletproof. Cause I was, I was knocked down. I was depressed. I was at times suicidal. Um, but I believe that when we can find some kind of purpose, some type of reason, no matter what our loss is that, uh, and it takes everybody a different time and everybody needs to grieve in different periods of time. Um, but I believe that we can actually come back and, and be stronger and um you know nietzsche said it and and kelly clarkson said it you know uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger if you get back up you know so um sure so yeah and i i think pain uh for for my life and i've met so many people you know their core relationship suddenly shattered and they thought it would be that way forever they work at the job you know and they've given their heart in their life and suddenly someone says mm, we don't really need you anymore uh someone so close to you suddenly dies um and i think that uh you know i've, ha I've had a couple of these you know traumatic experiences in my life and, and i believe that they've always made me stronger my mother dying when i was relatively young you know certainly you know 9 11 um 
David Simon, my best friend, you know, I had like given everything to that, that relationship. We were like inseparable. And, uh, you know, we must've spent like six hours every day talking about the Yoga Vashishta and Sufism and, you know, and the Bible and like all this cooked out stuff, um, really deep, deep stuff. And um, so his dying also was sort of like, that was one of those moments that just rocked me to the core. And like in that moment, I had to, after that experience, I just had to say like, what value can I bring to the world now? Okay. What, uh, nothing can ever get worse than everything that's happened so far. Where, where can I really, you know, I really like looking up to the heavens and asking the universe, what will you have me do now? What shall I do? Um, and I, and I wake up every day with that. I wake up every day. Like, how can I add value to this place? And there are times where I say, you know what? Today, I don't know that I can add value. I'm not creative enough to come up with something that is worthy. And other days, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is it. Let's do it. Let's bring it. And so I have deeper conversations with myself about my place in the world rather than just sleepwalking through it. Yeah. Yeah. I so, I so relate to the piece around knowing the days where you don't have it. And knowing that knowing on those days, then go within and deepen with yourself. Whereas for many years, I used to fight that both spiritually and creatively. I used to have a belief about uh, about holding holding myself in a certain place. And once I let that go, everything got a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, because you know, if you're a high achiever, you know, and pretty much or or a pitta in Ayurveda, you know, we call those fire people. Um, you're you're going to be pretty harsh to yourself when you're when you're not bringing it, mm-hmm. and and who can who can bring it every day? No one can. You know, think of your greatest archetypes and heroes. You know, uh, we we're we're often only seeing them when they're in thrive mode. Okay. We're not seeing them when they're just trying to tread water and uh, and just breathe, and um, maybe they're in pain emotionally or physically. So, uh, you know, that taught me a lot too. It taught me. A, a, it taught me a lot about um, empathy and compassion, you know, as well, because I think those, those, you know, uh, those are also, there's no end point for that. You have to keep evolving your emotional intelligence and, and, and because we can't even guess other people's pain, you know, we, we can, we can witness it and it can hurt us a lot, but when someone's in a unique situation that you could never be in, it's agonizing, you know, and you can only guess the 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 depth uh, uh, of that. So I'm on a journey to you know I want to feel it. I want to feel you know the the excruciating pain that someone else is feeling. Not to take it on, mm. not to take that energy on, and not to steal their their moment. Um, but I want to feel it because I I believe my heart can love more if if I can get to certain places that I'm otherwise protecting myself from. Mm. Mm. It's interesting when you talk about 9-11 and the impact that had on you and, and you know, I, I feel like especially for people in the younger generation right now who, who were either too young when 9-11 happened or who weren't affected by it, in a way what we're experiencing in this past five, six months with coronavirus, uh, stay-at-home orders, everything that's been going on around it and through it too, I feel like this is one of those transformational times um, for everybody right now in the world. I'm curious how, because clearly, you know, your work is more needed than ever at a time like this. 
helping people center, helping people work with stress. How has it personally affected you to not be out there with people, working with people? You know, what would you say perhaps the gift and the challenge for you have been through this, this last four or five months of social distancing? Yeah, well, thank you for phrasing it like that, the gift and the challenge. <clears throat> because I believe, you know, I, I have a gratitude practice, you know, I'm sure you do, you know, and it's part of my meditation practice every single morning. Simply just asking, what am I grateful for? And just like going there for, for five or 15 minutes. And, you know, the obvious things are all the things that, that, that we see, you know, people, circumstances, situations that are nourishing and loving to us. And, uh, but what about all the stuff that pushes us in directions and makes us feel that's not on the surface nourishing to us? Um, you know, yeah, uh, you know, 9-11 was, was, was core uh, to me. <clears throat> I, I don't know that you need a 9-11 to even have that. You could just have someone that you loved so deeply you know, get sick or, or, or die or, or leave you, you know, everyone's got that, you know, that, that, or those moments. And I think that, um, yeah, in five years, no one will even know what I'm talking about. When I say nine 11, they're going to be like, you mean dial nine one one. Um, so, so I get it. Uh, you know, that was, you know, for me, that was a defining touch point. Uh, and, and I think everyone has those. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're like five or more, in 2020, guess what? You know, this this was a defining, weird, you know, year for you. You didn't go to school if you were a kid, you know, where you stopped going to school. You couldn't really connect as a teenager. And that's like, those are the years when you need desperately to, to connect. Um, if you were a parent, you had to suddenly homeschool um, and and simultaneously do a job if, by the grace of God, you, you kept your job. Um, I call this period of time low tide. You know, I go to the beach. I live pretty close to the beach. And I go to the beach with with my dog a lot. And um, we like to go at low tide because at low tide, the beach is really, really wide. And we'll go at like crack of dawn, you know, six o'clock in the morning and there's no one there. And at low tide, um, it's a very, very different experience. And now I've been to the beach at low tide, you know, it happens every, you know, realistically, it's going on. You know, it happens twice a day, every six hours, low tide. But at, um, especially closer to the new moon, it's really, really, really low. And so we all know high tide. We've been living in high tide for the last decade or so, or maybe longer than that. Um, you know, high tide, you're, you know, you're bouncing on the waves, you see the clouds, you see the trees, you see the other boats on the water. You can look down, you can't even see the bottom. You know, everything's beautiful. It's High tide is amazing. Low tide's the opposite. Low tide suddenly all is revealed. Low tide, suddenly all the sharp edges come out. So for us who are beings of connection and energy to be suddenly compressed into this space where we are told you can't go out, you can't do this, you can't do that. And then simultaneously for us to suddenly see the rapid fire symptoms of systemic racism in our, in our world, um, which, and the message there is get out get out the streets are talking get out there and join the streets and so one part of the world is squeezing you in and another part is telling you to to squeeze out i believe that this is such a critical time regardless of where you're intellectually or philosophically or politically or socially this is a critical time for self-care and so when you know our governor closed down our our state and like 
Gun ranges were open. Gun stores were open. They, that was an essential business, but not meditation teachers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, what? Someone's got their priorities reversed on this one. De- definitely, you know, you want to keep your gun stores open. Well, at least allow the meditation teachers also to be, to be doing stuff. Um, and so um, that really, you know, it, it, it was that moment where suddenly you know, we started to feel the walls coming in at the same time that something inside of us was telling to go out. Mm. And, uh, you know, the level of, of depression that people have experienced. And, you know, just look at the dogs, you know, I'm, 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 I'm big on, uh, I'm, I'm not big on dogma, but I'm really big on dogs. So, you know, the dogs who suddenly have had their routine turned on its head and the kids whose routines have been turned on their head and even our circadian rhythms that we're supposed to like do this or at least we've trained ourselves to do that and the funny thing is we've been praying for this probably for 25 years we've been begging for this we all have said oh my god if I could just have two weeks with nothing happening I would feel so much better right now I would feel so clear-headed you know, and then it arrives, not in the form we requested and not going away so quickly either. And, uh, you know, suddenly two weeks later, everyone's like, can we just get back to what we were doing? And it's like, no, you begged for this thing. So I think we're confused. I think we're overwhelmed. I think we uh, were probably all not eating as good as we could. Uh, I, I know that uh, alcoholism has been on the rise. I know depression's on the rise. Um, I know there's a lot of dysfunctionality in, in relationships that thrived because there was always space being put between them and now no space um, or certainly less space. And so I believe that um, now more than ever, people who can um, offer some, some peace of mind, peace of heart um, to others and teach them how to do it. You know, that's always been like a thing. I don't want to like have like an amazing session with a person and they go, wow, that blew my mind. I was so chill. You totally connected me to my stillness because then it's just like going to a movie. It's like, all right, well, that was interesting. How do I then get you hooked on showing up the next day and the next day and the next day and really weaving this timeless practice into your life so that everything has a a little bit of, of, uh, of elevation from that. And so uh, I've been, this has been like one of the hardest periods of my life because, you know, we have events where people are like, you know, hugging or where they're gazing into each other's eyes or where they're, you know, doing stuff that's, you know, uh, even if it's like, you know, sound healing and things along those lines. And now it's all via Zoom. Now it's all via this, this, thing. I'm also doing a lot of training that I would otherwise do in person and that it's harder to get feedback for me. Yesterday, I, I was working with um, the, the executives of the San Francisco Police Department. You know, that was like a really, really intense, you know, it was all an all day thing. It was like eight hours of me staring into the green dot, you know, um, for, for that whole period of time. And I think that's, um, and I get it's good because like just like we're gazing into each other's eyes right now. But when there's, you know, 30 people on the screen and you don't really know, you know, if someone's like checking emails while they're doing that um, or, or watching, you know, watching YouTube videos, um, it's hard. And there's no room for that spontaneous 
aha moment from someone who's just sitting there. So, you know, um, I was supposed to take a group uh, in September to India. I do that every year, take a, take a, a group of people. And um, it just didn't feel right yeah. to do that. Um, India is not even allowing flights from the United States right now. So it's really hard for me to say, yeah, sure, everything will be fine. Uh, so I pushed that off till next year. Um, so I'm sure it'll be in big demand, you know, but that was sort of like a, a bit of a heartbreak for me that these people wouldn't get to experience that because this would be the time, you know, when you could really connect to some of that timeless wisdom. And I've got uh, a whole bunch of in-person events set up for October, November. See what happens there. Um, all of our events sort of, you know, got canceled when the governor's order came down uh, in May. <clears throat> so I've just, you know, I've, I've pivoted and I'm just like, I don't want to stop teaching. I'm still teaching every day, still connecting to hundreds of people every day. Um, but if this, if this is it, then let me become a, a Zoom expert. You know, mm -hmm. if this is, if this is the way to do it, you know, let me just, um, let me step up. Let me step up my game and see if I can create the greatest, you know, as, as you do, you, you've created this magnificent platform, uh, for people to heal and thrive. Um, you know, so that's, I can only aspire to, uh, to, to follow your lead, Lee. The, the, thank you. And the one thing that we said is, you know, the one thing that you just said, which I'm very aware of, especially in our Zoom culture, like you, I'm grateful we have Zoom. I'm grateful that we have this, what to me seems like a slightly psychic telepathic communication portal that we can use, but I'm really aware that our bodies get left behind. Our physical senses get left behind. That part of us that when we're in a room with each other is reading and communicating energy completely unconsciously, subconsciously. So I think it's a, it's a, tricky, it's a tricky thing. Uh, like for me personally, nothing really slowed down. If anything, I felt like the, um, I felt the need go up in the world for the kind of stuff we do. So I kind of, for the first few weeks, really, and also we, like you, we had to cancel some things and change some things. And, but, but what I also recognized for myself was because so many people were new to Zoom or it was like a novelty for them. There were all these people going, hey, should we Zoom at like five? And I was like, no, because I'm, you know, I'm like, I, I do my four hours a day on Zoom, sometimes more, and that's enough. And then I need to back away. Otherwise, I start to lose balance because it's, it's a slightly confusing way of communicating if you do it too much and you don't have the physical mirroring and the, the physical response that I think we're all, we're all craving and missing and, and trying to find our new balance point with, because it, it, this is a time like no other when it comes to that. Yeah. And in person, um, <clears throat> and all of my workshops, they're small workshops. I try, I, I always cap, whatever I do, I cap it at 30 people because I, for me, I want to, you know, by the end of the day, I want to know everyone's name. I want to know everyone's voice after two days or something along those lines. There's something about, it's not just my connection to that person, but if there's 30 of us, that creates this unbelievable, uh, amplified, energetic connection, which um, that's the thing I find most missing. People can, you know, and and I've done, I just come, I've, I've done two teacher trainings now, virtual on Zoom, um, where, where I've certified uh, meditation teachers and gone through another, um, you know, done a few events. There's, there's, you know, some 
so I'm really, really familiar with like, what was missing on that one? What was, how, how can I engage this one at a higher level? And um, so there are some things that I've, that I've done sort of like a speed dating kind of thing. If we've got 30 people, I break them up into Zoom rooms and suddenly it's four people and it's like, okay, for 10 minutes, talk to each other. And then, you know, that happens and then it's like, do it again, do it again. So there's sort of like speed dating and, and workshop simultaneously, but still like I'm missing that. Like I'm offering that to them and then they all come back to the main room. So there are, um, I'm always trying to raise the bar. I'm always trying to figure out what's the newest technique that someone's doing that's adding value. Uh, but there's nothing like um, listening with your eyes closed to the room breathing. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing more powerful yeah. than that. Where you suddenly, like suddenly, you know, I'm big on entrainment. And we, you know, we know that if there's, you know, five people in a room or eight people or 30 people in the room, ultimately, if we spend enough time together, you know, our energy will entrain. Our heartbeats will all start beating at the same highest. I always say the highest vibration always wins. So whoever's got the slowest heartbeat, everyone's going to get pulled down to that. Whoever's, you know, the most loving person, everyone's going to get elevated mm -hmm. to that. And I, and, you know, I think that's missing when we, when we're looking at 30 boxes on a screen, like, Hollywood Squares or, or, or Brady Bunch, um, it doesn't have that same, that same energetic feel. So you're right. We leave our bodies behind. We go from being these, you know, three, four, five dimensional beings into just these two dimensional little boxes on a screen. Um, don't worry. I'm sure we're, I'm sure we're just a couple of years away from suddenly everyone going like, Oh, you don't have the, uh, the 3d app, you know, or the, or the 4d app. Um, so that'll be the next wave yeah. of this. I think the sensory replication app, you just put your hand in it and it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I don't know if I want to think about that, but you're probably, <laughs> it's, it's a little hard. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many things that I could talk to you about and I'm aware that, you know, partly because of the time that we booked with you and partly because I think most people, an hour-long conversation tends to be enough. I was trying to think today, okay, well, what is most relevant? Because you have such an enormous body of work. And the one thing that really stuck out to me, and you just mentioned it, especially with our recent climate around police brutality, was your Blue Courage awareness training. Yeah. Um, perhaps you could just tell us what is that? What does that look like? And, and, and how, how did you get started with that? Yeah. Um, I, I guess it was about 10 years ago. Um, I stumbled in, I got invited. It was a trick. It was a prank on me, um, to, um, go to Camp Pendleton, which is the largest Marine, you know, uh, reserve in the United States. Um, and these guys had just come back from too many tours of Iraq and Afghanistan. And I was, I, you know, I just come off the beach. I was wearing a giant Ohm t-shirt. My hair was like scraggly and, and, and really long. And, um, and I, it was a prank. I, I, somebody thought it would be really funny to suddenly put me in front of these guys. And it was in that moment that I, that I suddenly realized, I'm not going to mention the word meditation. I have taught people um, who have been to, Iraq and Afghanistan. I have worked with soldiers before. I have um, several of my students um, have died in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I figured I would, well, let me just share what I do know and then let me call everything tactical breathing. 
Let me just talk about this. You know, we're going to do good some tactical. going to do like tactical yeah. breathing here. Yeah, um, very and, good. <laughs> and it was basically, um, you know, something that I evolved into. I call it sixteen second, uh, sixteen seconds uh, to clarity. And so everybody could like breathe in and watch their breath to the count of four. Let's just do it here, just to like to create this. So. Um, Think about something that's been bothering you or disturbing you. Don't go too deep. This isn't therapy, but something that's irritating. Something was supposed to happen over the last couple of days and it didn't turn out that way. Um, and now get clear on that. And now close your eyes and through your nose, take a long, slow, deep breath in and watch that breath. And when it gets down to your belly, hold it there and keep holding it and keep watching it and keep witnessing it and keep observing it. And then very, very slowly release that breath and keep watching it as it moves up your chest. Watch it as it moves through your throat, out through your nostrils. Keep witnessing, keep exhaling. And now breathe normally and open your eyes. So that was 16 seconds. Mm. Classic pattern interrupt. In Good. those 16 seconds, if you were playing along and you did, Lee, thank you. Um, you, were not think, you, were not th you were not thinking about that thing that I asked you to think I about. I'm not going to miss out on a on a on a free David G session in the middle of are you kidding me? Uh, that was fantastic. I might be I might be calling you every day at this time from now on. I would love that. I would love that. I'll put it on, I'll put that on my calendar. Um, so if you were playing along, you weren't thinking about that that irritation, and I didn't say stop thinking about that irritation, and and that's the key. Um, you just close your eyes and really found yourself another object of your attention. And I believe that, so that's what I taught these Marines. And uh, it worked. And they said, would you please come back tomorrow? And I said, it took me a half hour just to get through security here. <laughs> and, and they're like, no, we'll leave your name the next time. And they did. They, was in a, they just keep, kept wanting to prank me. So, uh, so I came back the next day and led another 16-second meditation. They said, keep coming. And I kept coming. And then after a week, they were doing that. And then they said, would you come back next week? I said, well, if I come back next week, we're adding a minute. So we did a minute and 16 every single day. And then two minutes and 16. And we did that every single day for 26 weeks. I was gone for like week 17 to 22 because I had to travel. But these guys now, a decade later, are all meditating for 26 minutes and 16 seconds every single day. Mm. But it was that experience um, that really, you know, clicked it for me. Um, and then um, the Department of Justice found out about that and reached out to me and said, there's a group that works with cops and they need this too if you're open to it. And I was like, of course I'm open to it. Whatever your opinion may be on defunding the police, on hating the cops, on doing whatever, they're here. Mm -hmm. Just like we had a million soldiers come home from Iraq and Afghanistan. They're here. So we can either say death to them and then they're here or we can say, oh, my God, they're so wounded emotionally, physically, psychologically. How can I support? How can I help? How can I make a difference in helping these people de-escalate? How can I make a difference in helping these people breathe as they pull up on a crime scene? How can I make a difference in how they talk to others? And so I have taught, I've worked with Blue Courage, teaching them, you know, Don Miguel Ruiz's Four Agreements and the teachings of the Buddha. I took 10 of them to India last year and we were like meditating in the Beatles ashram and like 
going deep and swimming in the Ganges and, and going up into the Himalayas. You know, I want them to connect to the softest, most tenderest parts of who they are. You know, I want them to move beyond their stoicism because I know that who, who signs up to protect and serve and risk their lives for people they don't know. Not me. Yeah. Not me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking that job. Yeah. You know, they, you know, between soldiers and, and, and cops, you know, they're doing that for people they might not even like, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not doing that. So, so I, there's a certain nobility to the original why, why someone would become a cop. And I'm thinking most people do that for a good intention. They want to serve. They want to protect. Um, are there a-holes out there? Yeah, sure. And guess what? Pick the profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, these people are a lot, you know, have a lot more power than someone who's running the marketing department, you know, at eBay. Um, so, you know, there could, and I'm not saying that person's an a-hole. <laughs> I just took that out of, out of nowhere. Um, but so my feeling is, you know, that's how I work with people in the corporate world. I work with people, you know, and like I said, Dutch special forces. I've worked with the Ecuadorian police. I've worked with um, uh, the uh, the Dublin street gang guardia. Um, you know, I want to work with people who we've served, we've given up on, you know, and and I'm and I'm not giving up on them. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make that difference. Um, and, you know, I can't force anyone, but these 30 people who I worked with yesterday and I've worked with SFPD and I've worked with NYPD, you know, a whole bunch of different police departments. These guys had to apply and be accepted by the Blue Courage Leadership Division. So, you know, these weren't like showing up in a room and everyone's like sitting there like this going, oh, what do you have to teach me? These are people who said, I want to learn to connect to stillness and silence. I want to be more reflective. I want to be more patient. I want to be more purposeful with, with my policing. I want to restore the nobility of my profession. And I was like, like, I'd love hanging out with them. I mean, it was great. You know, really, really powerful. So, you know, I get a lot of haters all the time, you know, wherever I go, there's people like, why do you do that? Or why, you know, whatever. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just trying to follow my heart. If I can spread more love and if I can allow people to be better listeners um, and maybe raise their vibration, that's, that's my intention. You know, do I make mistakes? Tons of them. Do I stumble and bumble and, 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 you know, get defensive about stuff like that? Eh, sometimes, but you know, my feeling is, you know, we've got to love each other. We've, we've, there's more things that connect us than separate us. So we've got to love each other. And if we're not treating each other with respect, I don't care what side of anything you're on, you know, if you're not treating people with respect, you're never going to convince them. So then what? We suppress the voice and then it comes back with violence. Yeah. That's what's been going on for the last 400 years in the United States. You know, suppress the voice. You know, how long can you hold a balloon underwater? What happens to a dream deferred? You know, so, I mean, this is happening in all the quarters of the of the planet, I think. And every time we suppress a voice, I also go, go to Israel and hang out um, with groups of Palestinians and Israelis who have children who have been killed by, by suicide bombs and by Israeli bullets who work together to create peace. And people say to me, oh my God, you can't go to Israel. It's apartheid. They're, they're these horrible people. I'm like, what are you doing? Sitting on the couch pointing at me? 
you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to bridge that piece and I'm trying to, to raise them. And I bring groups of people to experience that so they can come back here and understand that we have a deeper obligation to love each other, which is no one has taught that in school, whatever school you go to. So sort of like my side mission of like, you know, and so it's rough sometimes and these are rough times and, and they should be rough times, yeah. you know? So rather than going like, Oh my God, it's so hard. It's like, isn't everything worth having hard? There's no shortcuts here. You know, earlier when you said that you got incredible support from Louise Hay, Wayne Dyer, Deepak, um, all, all those people who you, you seem genuinely surprised by. When you said that, I was sitting here, you know, and my intuitive mind is a big part of my identity. And um, I, just, I just heard, yeah, he's an engine. They saw he's an engine. And they knew that he's an engine that's going to keep driving his energy around the world. And so they supported him because your design is a little different to theirs, perhaps, but that they could see that your design was going to do exactly what you just said you're doing. It's like you're the engine that will. You're the engine that will drive, that will go over there and sort this out. And so that, that just came to me again when you were speaking about the bridging wow. work that you do, that you're this, you're this energy engine and that, that's its own kind of superpower. And that's a really important role in our world. And I love that you talk about superpowers because I believe that we are mutants, you know, and, I, you know, everyone should watch X-Men over and over oh, and right. over and just allow yourselves to realize, oh, my God, that's really why I wrote Sacred Powers, because they're resting within. And, of course, every mutant. Is, is not necessarily appreciated for their superpowers. You know, lots of, you know, look at any mutant out there and they're like, you know, now they're, they're, they're trying to shut me down. So that's why we have to really go deeper with our, with our superpowers. Um, <clears throat> when I, I was watching a video where you were talking about superpowers and I was just like in glee. I was just like in, so giddy watching it. So. Well, it's funny you bring up sacred powers because I, I probably have room for two more questions with you. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, so you have three books um, and in sacred powers, you have a chapter called Divine Formula and you touch on looking at what's your winning formula. So explain what a winning formula is to the listeners and what would you say yours is? Well, so a winning formula <clears throat> at a certain age, we realized here are the blockages. Maybe I'm not as attractive as that other person who's always getting picked, you know, called on. I'm getting picked on. They're getting called on. Uh, maybe I'm not as smart as that person who's suddenly, you know, going to have this path to success in their life. Um, you know, and we can, you know, we we all do this. You know, we at some point someone said no, or like, come on, you, you're not that. You know, and. Um, and so we, we, we adapted and we said, okay, what's, what's my template? You know, what's the paradigm that I'm going to use? What's the persona that I'm going to sort of create to walk through the world? And it helps us get to that point. But I believe that at a certain point, because so many different stages and phases of life, yeah. that at a certain point, you know, what was critical in getting us through high school or critical for us getting our first job or maybe meeting someone, you know, to, to partner with um, or establish ourselves in the world. That's not necessarily the same paradigm that we need now. 
And so my winning formula for a solid 30 years was class clown. It was, you know, I was like in my home, I grew up, um, I grew up in a fairly, you know, uh, violent and loud household where the only person who got heard was the person who yelled the loudest. And I did not have the loudest yell, so I never got heard. I was invisible. But when I could trot out a joke and make someone laugh, suddenly I would get that attention. I realized that at home, I realized that at school. I wasn't necessarily the best studier, but I definitely could could say the funny or sarcastic or or whatever thing. And so I was always getting the attention that I felt I wasn't getting in other critical core areas. I did it when I got my first job, you know, and people were always like, oh, that guy, he's so he's so fun to hang out with. But as I got deeper involved in the corporate world and as I got deeper involved in my education and, and advanced my education, I realized I'm not really being appreciated for what I want to be appreciated for. I want people to say, wow, you studied that? You've been doing that for like all this time? That was so brilliant what you said. And instead they were saying, that was so funny. And it, ha- it, and it clicked on me when I was introduced like to speak at some place. I, mean, I was speaking to like, you know, I was teaching uh, law school, um, teaching lawyers about finance at, at Cornell Law. And they introduced me as like, you know, he's one of the funniest people I know. And I'm like, really? Here I am. I'm teaching at Cornell Law. And that's my intro. <laughs> and it was just like, kill me now. You know, the, the knife was just like twisting inside of me. And I realized, you know what? It's time to take out my contact lenses that I've been living my life through. Shake them out. Wipe them out. And come up with a new winning formula. Because I realized that I was defaulting to conditioned behaviors because that had been my winning formula on a path I was no longer on. Yeah. And so I dove deeper into going, you know, going deeper into education and going deeper into school and studying and going deep into the ancient teachings of the Bhagavad Gita and, and uh, the, the Yoga Sutras and um, the Dhammapada and the Rig Veda and the Upanishads. And suddenly like all this stuff that was like so new to me. And I said, let me, Let me own every single word. Let me memorize it and etch it into my heart. Let me make that, you know, my new formula. So now I'd rather, you know, come up with a one-liner that's something that I read, you know, like Yoga Stakuru Karmani or some kind of profundity that has been a timeless wisdom and I get to translate it in modern times than the joke. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, and, you know, and I use humor to teach yeah. because I think it's very disarming. And I think, you know, people can can sit there and, and have a great time and take on all this information. And once in a while, someone says, you know, you should do like stand-up comedy. And I'm like, thanks. It's my old winning formula, my new winning formula. Um, so I would say that, you know, I, I leveraged my humor um, as my first winning formula. It was, it was the end. Now it's the means. And that shift for me, realizing that, you know, the goal isn't to get a laugh. The goal is to see the aha moment in the student in front of me. And they didn't even know that they got it in that moment. You know, a week later, they'll be walking across the street and they'll be like, wow, that was really cool. Where did I, where did I hear that? I don't need to get credit for it. I see it the moment it happens. Um, So really shifting humor from the end to the means changed my entire life. And that's my winning formula now. 
you know, Beautiful. I want I want to sit in a casual way, talk about something so deep that no one would ever want to talk to or listen to and have it be so light that they get it. But here's, here's what I love about that. So you were talking about tactical breathing was how you reframed meditation and breath training. And it's, I think that's the irony to me. Like one of the things, because I, I did not, uh, I never envisaged that I would go by the names of variously channeler, intuitive guide, spiritual teacher. Um, I didn't think I would add those to <laughs> flawed human and somebody trying to figure it out. You know, all the other names that we have in any other in any other capacity, because I think there was so much separation for me in those terms, and more importantly, in the way that people see those terms. You know, there was still this guru ideal idealization. So I think a lot of the time, the separation that we have around spirituality is because we forget it's in us and it's right. close to us. So tactical breathing. Oh yeah, totally. The way I think and the way I have been entrained and programmed to think, tactical breathing sounds like a benefit. But meditation sounds like this weird woo-woo, oh, hang on a second, there is this barrier. And so I love that what you're talking about is finding ways to, to constantly connect people to that which is already in us and to, in a way... Um, normalize or ground some of this stuff because I use humor in the same way and especially when I'm live in the room because it moves energy and it's a way of moving energy which can otherwise be too heavy because the other side of what you're saying which I find really powerful as a student of self-growth and healing because I needed it desperately in order to survive in my early in my late teens and early 20s um, what I then found as I went into being a facilitator for other people's healing and self-growth, as well as being a student of it, was that it's, it's very common that we will start to focus, people are more comfortable focusing on what they need to let go of, what they need to heal, than remembering that the gift of self-actualization, spirituality, healing is, it brings back your creator. So you can create a new story. You can create a new winning formula. That's the beauty of life. We aren't the programs that we have become or been entrained to think we have to stay as. The beauty of life is the physical body is going to change you. This world around is going to change us. Those two things are going to change our perspective and our relationship all of the time. But I find it really exciting that, you know, this chapter that you have and this method that you have is, I think that's one of the things that I think would set the world on fire very fast is if we remember our ability to create and our ability to recreate, because I think that's one of the things that we are very asleep at the wheel at as a society. And it's one of the things I've seen now working in healing for 16 years. That's the hardest thing for a lot of people to get. It's very easy for people to think, oh yeah, I need to heal what happened with my mother. Yeah, maybe. And if you invent something on the right at the same time, you know, heal on a Tuesday and then on a Wednesday, go and learn something new. That healing is going to be so much easier than if we just look down and behind. And I say that as someone who, hey, I've played the victim. I've had all the dark night of the soul. I don't want to be here moments too. I get it. But I think that creator power is so what we need right now. And I think that's the gift of self-actualization. It's so brilliantly. Really? I'm just I'm just bouncing off you, David because <laughs> I loved you know everything. But it, it was it was kind of a, you know that was a, a clarifying moment for me hearing you say that. It was that's always been one of the things that I've noticed in the healing and the spiritual worlds um, that I you know I I sometimes say that I'm uh, New Age recovery. 
So people go, oh, yeah, Lee does that new age work. But if you really know what I do, no, I'm kind of like new age recovery. I'm all about intuition. And I love a lot of stuff around the new age, but I'm not, you can just love and light your way through everything. I don't think that's who we're here to be. I think we're here to, to really become. So no, I, 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 love, I love that part of your work. And I think it's very important. So David G, we, we're at the end, sadly. I could Oh my God, I'm having such a great time hanging out with you. Oh my God. (laughs) Me too, me too. But we had a meeting about a week ago and it was suggested that we need to be careful about how long the the kind of interviews and conversations go. And I get it because, you know, people told me, they said, oh, people don't like seeing that something's over an hour. And I'm like, okay. Anyway. Um, this could be the bonus track. <laughs> it could be. The it one be. one ends at 59 minutes and the other one is like, and a 15-minute bonus exactly. track. <laughs> For those of you who have, who have all the time in the world, we're now going on to the six-hour debrief about that one aspect. Um, you know, Impact the World is, the reason this show is called Impact the World is because I paid attention to what my community was saying before I started training groups around the work they wanted to do in the world, because I was doing it a lot one-on-one. I kept hearing people going, I feel like I'm here to impact the world, but I don't know what. So that's why this show is called Impact the World. You have impacted the world externally. You have impacted your own journey internally because you've, you've had this rich and varied journey so far and it ain't over yet. What's next for you? Like if you if, if you have an idea about your next decade or just in this moment, what feels important to you perhaps in your next decade? Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> great question. And, I, and, and my tagline, which I've had for 20 years, is we transform the world by transforming ourselves. Mm. So it's the, you know, so I believe that, um, and I'm not all about love and light. You know, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I think, you know, you and I really see eye to eye on this, you know, um, yeah, I want to show it with my best version. Um, but uh, boundaries are like so critical to, to, to everything. Oh, yeah. Boundaries are so critical to, you know, because if I really understand boundaries, then I can really be fully vulnerable. And if I'm fully vulnerable, then I can get so strong and be so courageous. But if I have boundaries, you know, if I don't have boundaries, then, you know, or if I have porous boundaries, then I'm suddenly, I'm not going to be in, in my best place because I'm going to be putting my attention on trying to stop something or, or, or defend something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's, you know, really such, a, such an important part of, of, of what we do. Because I believe everybody who's on this journey um, is on a journey back to their wholeness, mm-hmm. back to the memory of their wholeness at least. And, um, and that's not always love and light. <laughs> that's, that's sometimes tears and crawling through glass. Yeah. And, um, and if you think, oh, no, 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 it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Yes, yes, yes. At the highest level, you know, the ancient teachings say, yes, it's all Brahman. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's all Godhead. But here we are with bills to pay and relationships to heal and, you know, to actualize ourselves. Yes, it is all Godhead, but what about all that other real world stuff? Totally. Um, and we could say, oh, it's all an illusion. Okay, stop paying your bills for a couple of months and then you'll see how much of an illusion it is. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, uh, I, I guess, you know, it's, it, you know, I guess there's another uh, book that, that, that's in the works. But, you know, 
I never like wrote my, you know, I never, I, I never like wrote a book on like on demand, you know, Hey House has said it tons of times to me. Okay. We're ready for your next one. And I'm like, mm, but I, I really want to live this one a little bit. And they're like, uh, everyone else is not. They're yeah. coming out with a new book every three months. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not me. I want to, I want to be so deep talking about the same thing that I wrote about. I don't just want to like, here's the next one and the next one. So, um, so I like to, to really relish, you know, uh, it's a great album by Joan Osborne, but mm -hmm. you know, I love to relish, um, the stuff when it's feeling good. Mm. And so, uh, I've been, you know, I've been a, I've been a student of, of a lot of these ancient texts for a long time. And, you know, over the last several months, um, I've been doing these, these five week online sessions. And the funny thing is, Lee, they're all supposed to be an hour twice a week, Sunday and, and Wednesday. And as we hit the two hour mark, and there are people who are like in the chat and we could have like 150 people on there. And the people in the chat are saying, can we get to the meditation already? <laughs> And so I have, I have been scolded so frequently. Other people are like, oh my God, I wasn't doing anything anyway. This is like yeah. the most amazing thing. But, you know, since I said they were going to be, it was going to be, you know, five weeks, one hour each, one hour each. And they've, they've all gone over, gone like yeah. two hours. So I have no temporal integrity. So um, I, I don't, I don't. And it's not because I don't care about anyone else's time, but it's suddenly like, oh, 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 this thing is like so amazing. You have to, let me just take, you know, but I do that suddenly like eight times in a session and one hour turns to two. So, so that's what's, you know, so funny that you're saying that because I was just scolded just yesterday, two days ago yeah. for having no temporal integrity. Um, so like, what's next for me? You know, I don't, I don't have a, an end game, um, you know, on this July 14th is coming up. July 14th was the day that I started at the Chopra center. That's a uh, Bastille day. That's uh, liberation day. That's moksha day. And it's actually the last day that I was there as well. July 14th and July 14th. So I view since that was like the last official day that I was there, I'm still in the glow. So what I do every July 14th, that's sort of like my celebration that like, where I say like, you know, what's next? What, what can I do? I believe we're going to be in the age of COVID for a while. I believe um, until there's either a drug or a vaccine, we're still going to be, you know, not moving around as freely as, as we want. And that's going to put up again, that, that, that extreme constriction. Um, so I've been, you know, studying more of the ancient texts because whatever we're going through, they went, they went through similar things as well. And so, you know, really what I'm, what I'm, what I've been really putting my time and attention on is finding the commonalities in so many different indigenous societies. I've been really spending a lot of time ex exploring African societies from like 75, um, I shouldn't say societies, cultures from 75,000 years ago, because they really were more tribal than societal um, at that time. And that seems to be the foundation of where everything has come from starting in Africa 75,000 years ago. And so I've been really spending, you know, probably for the last three years, I've been, I've been putting my time and attention on that, seeing where the various migrations occurred, what are some of the rituals and routines that those people elevated out, um, which things be, happened spontaneously and naturally. So I'm sure there's another book where I really go deep into the commonalities of virtually every, um, every cult culture. Um, but that just fascinates me now. Simultaneously, I'm fascinated by um, our solar system, 
Do you know that the sun has this thing called the heliosphere and it wraps our entire solar system and protects us as it showers us with gamma rays constantly, but it protects us from all the other radioactive stuff coming from every other part of the galaxy. So how come we're not getting like shredded by gamma waves? Because there's something also called the magnetosphere, which only Earth has because we have this, this liquid weird center and that protects us from the gamma rays of the heliosphere. So like talk about like divine whatever in, in, in terms of setting us up. So, you know, I've been spending a lot of time exploring, you know, our solar system and, and, you know, that kind of stuff, because I believe that, you know, there's a, an expression in Sanskrit, you know, yatapinde tat brahmandi, you know, as is the cosmic mind, so is the personal mind, as is the cosmic body, so is the personal body. So I know that, you know, so we have our own little heliosphere and magnetosphere inside of us as well as a people and as individuals. And so I, I see us as like these 7.6 billion people and we're all wrapped in our own little heliosphere. And yet there's like, how do I really like elevate my individuality it's because i've got my own little liquid center right in my heart you know my own little magnetosphere that's allowing me to like move through the world so i don't know that's where i've been that's where i've been uh that's what i've been studying um you know going back as far as we can go back and going out as far as as i can go out um and trying to come up with some type of really um some translation of that divine convergence mm. So it's it's I, I'm excited. I'm listening to you, and I'm like, the, if if anyone at Hay House is watching this right now, you're probably going to get a call, and they're going to say, "Yeah, we would like uh, those Tribe of the Universe volumes one to ten books that you're working on, and it'll just be called the David G. Volumes, like you know, de decades from now." So, <laughs> no, that's that's awesome. That's awesome, and it's exciting, and um, and yeah, it's it's beautiful. So, David G. I am going to have to because apparently there are these things called, there are these rules around linear time that we're supposedly supposed to stick to, even though I too have trouble with all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but it has been absolutely delightful to get to be with you, connect with you, talk to you. And I, I know for a fact that anybody listening or watching, they're going to have some little pings going off from so. the beautiful engine that you are. So thank you for being you and thank you for doing what you do in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you for being so gracious. Um, and um, such a such a such an amazing person to have a conversation with. So you know, this time flew, and uh, and it's not enough. So like, how amazing you know yeah. is that? Thank you, thank you, and uh, to all of your um, all of your fans and followers and listeners and students, um, how how fortunate they are to be on this journey uh, with you as the guide because you know you are you're guiding us all into magnificence and i appreciate that thank you thank you thank you and for anybody listening or watching davidg.com is where you can find all of all of david g's work and we will as usual put the links in the show notes and underneath the video and uh, david g i hope i i feel there will be some other conversation collaboration something in the future and i really look forward to it thank you so much lee yeah thank you You have been listening to Impact the World. For more of my work, please visit leeharrisenergy.com.
This August, I'm doing something a little bit different. From the 18th to the 26th, me and my team are bringing to you a virtual soul magic experience. We've run soul magic retreats for the last four years, and we would have been going to Costa Rica this October for our fifth one. But because we can't, and also because I've been feeling a calling to hand over the microphone to my guides, the Zs, a little more of late, we have created a brand new experience for you called Transmissions 2020. In it, there will be five live broadcasts which will be entirely channeled. These broadcasts will focus on you accessing more of your magnetic energy. I've chosen to broadcast all of these live because that way I know the material will be specially curated for those of you who show up to take this experience with us. Added to this, we have for you a special music album, and it's sound healing pieces from Devor Bozik with my spoken words weaved throughout. And when you do sign up, the first track from the Transmissions sound healing album will be available for you immediately. So to find out more about what Transmissions 2020 entails, you can visit transmissions2020.com and if it resonates for you to take this special journey with us, we'll look forward to welcoming you there.